Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we hosted the North American premiere of The Other Monk, an engrossing documentary directed by Emil and Joachim Trier. The film follows the much-acclaimed Norwegian writer Carl Uwe Nausgaard as he is invited to guest curate an exhibition of paintings by Edward Munch at Oslo's Munch Museum. Co-director Joachim Trier appears on screen alongside Nausgaard as they visit several key locations from the celebrated painter's life, searching for insights into his imagination and vision as they discuss his vastly influential work. Our screening was followed by an extended discussion with Carl Ubik Nausgaard and Emil and Joachim Trier, moderated by our director of programming, Dennis Lim. Let's go to that now. Thank you all for being here. You said a little bit about how this project came about yep. in your introduction. Um, I'm curious to hear um, from Carlova's perspective why you approached Joachim um, to make this film. Um, why I approached Joachim? Yeah. <laughs> I was invited to curate an exhibition at the Monk Museum. I, I was um, proposing that we'll make a film. And I wrote a book and we make a film. And the only one I could think of was Joachim He's the greatest Norwegian film director there is. And, and his films are, I think they're wonderful. And to me, it was an op- opportunity just to meet him, you know. And there is also some, something that has to do with Munch in his, in his work, I think. And, and that was why. But I thought, you know, I, I didn't know what it is to make a film. And I thought, you know, we could do it maybe on the mobile phone. So just, you know, walk and talk a little bit and do it like that. And then I realized there, there, is, there is something more to making a film than that. You both talk about this in, in the film. Um, but I was wondering if you, maybe you could all talk a little bit about just your just initial encounter with Monk as, you know, a Norwegian. And I feel like you, you, you mentioned this in the speech that you give at the opening about how he's the greatest Norwegian artist and that sort of is a shadow that's cast on, on, on everything. And, and, um, and if you could all say a little bit about your, your encounter, your initial encounter with Monk and also the process of, of researching and making this film and how that might have changed. Well, uh, I could start. Uh, our grandmother uh, studied art history in Oslo in the 1940s. So when uh, Monk died in 1944, uh, she was one of the people uh, who entered his studio and uh, helped out to move all of the paintings down to the new Monk Museum. And she told us this when we were children. And uh, uh, what amazed her the most was how many paintings that was in that studio, because he, he was eight years old and painted every day. So it was filled with paintings, and, and uh, but but uh, my relation to, to Monk is his most famous work, and and when um, uh, Joachim and Karlova kidnapped me into helping out with this film, uh, it was uh, uh, I saw a new side of Monk uh, through uh, Karlova's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I I felt like Emil as well that Monk was this character that you were shown in kindergarten and in school as the greatest Norwegian artist. And 
it, it turned out, you know, as Karlova, I think he makes a very accurate point in, in the film that it's actually just like 12, 15 paintings that we were ever shown. And so what I was curious about, how, how was it for this painter who was kind of the rock star of the 1890s and, and lived with, you know, he was in Berlin and he encountered all these famous artists and, and made art that everyone kept talking about. And then he had a latter life of, of art that no one really knew about. And, and I was very curious to explore that. And I think I learned a lot from that. And I think also, just the fact of, of being, uh, being allowed to be close to the actual paintings. I, I, I realized when we were doing the film that Karlova, when we went to the places where Munch had painted, like you see at the beach in Oskar Strand, for example, um, we, we were kind of a little bit lost, I think in a good way. We were like walking into the, 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 the film set of some great film director and we didn't know where, the, what, where were the actions, where were the actors, you know? But when we encountered the paintings in the basement for the first time, it was a magnificent moment. And actually it, it speaks to, to the point that these paintings are really great. And they're not only uh, in terms of, of um, the motifs, but also in the actual texture, the color, the, you know, the, the, the idea of the actual paint of it, the, the physicality of those paintings. And that's when I saw Carlo, Carlo Uwe come to life, really. Like, For I could see it in time. your eyes. You were like, wow, you know, like something happened. And, I, I, and then I really got what, what you'd seen and how, what your point of the whole curating this exhibition was all about. In terms of just conceptualizing this documentary, did you... Was it a kind of film where you were figuring out as you went, or did you have a plan? Did you know what you what the scenes were going to be as you before you started? Obviously, no, no pla plan. place is very important in the film. I mean, the idea to actually like visit a certain location that is significant. I'll, I'll, I'll just answer that because if someone had said, "I'm actually I, I've never been in front of a camera in my whole life," and it was a practical thing that just happened, and we had no plan, and call over who I have to admire a lot. I think his process of being very pure about his writing is inspiring to everyone who wants to create stories and art, right? So when he says something, you better listen. This is my kind of going into the project. And Kalova really tried to tell Emil and I to just relax and go with the flow. And as a feature filmmaker, you are very, very concerned with practicalities because if that actor is going through a divorce and it rains on the sunny day you need for your film and you know, you think 10 steps ahead all the time and you become a control freak. And Karlova asked us to kind of relax. And then before I knew it, I was in front of a camera and I'm, I'm yeah, so that there was no real plan and we went with the flow. And in a strange way, Emil directed, but Karlova kind of led the way into, into the chaos. But we, I think we, we found it kind of intuitively together. I have no idea. I mean, I never planned anything. The only thing I knew was there are some places with Munk and we go there. That was, that was the plan. And we have a camera with us. And the rest, uh, the rest they did. But I do think that's a, a very interesting um, angle into an artist is the place where he works or where she works. Uh, and the fascinating thing to come to the places where Munch painted is that if you see the paintings, it's like, it's like they're universal, you know, it's like it's about humanity and it's about pain or it's about moments in life. Um, and, and you have a feeling that it's, it's, it's everywhere. And then you come to the little place 
and you realize it's here, it's this little place, and it's, it is a house, and it's a hundred meter around that house, and that was where everything took place. And you realize, well, that's how I am in my life. I have this little place here, and, and you have, and you have, and that, that was kind of the, the contrast thing was, was what art is, which is a universal general thing, and what, what making of art is is always, you know, in, in a concrete place. Were you, um, had you already finished the, the curation process by the time you were making the film with these guys? Or had you made your selections and... No, that was, that was all happening during, yeah. during the filming. And, and a lot of the things was when we could meet, then we filmed. And if we couldn't meet, we didn't film. Wasn't it like that? Yeah. It was like that, yeah. And, and uh, Carlo is a busy man, of course. So <laughs> the logistics of... Uh, and he was also at the same time writing a book about Monk, so, um, and Karlov is always writing the truth, as we know, so, so I remember picking up on that day when we were going to Oskarstrand, you were living on this um, hotel in the middle of Oslo, which is impossible to get to because of traffic, and I remember all these traffic violations and getting down there and picking up and no police saw me, and then I, uh, we drove out and a couple of months later I read about that whole scene in the book. I almost lost my driver's license, which is a small price to pay to be in a Karl Lovacnowskor novel. <laughs> we, we obviously get a sense of this um, in the film, but I was hoping that, Karlova, you could say a little bit more about your, this, this process of, of curating this show. Um, how much work did you actually look at? You know, how much time did you spend? At the museum, in that vault, like why, and also, like, you know, the question of why these works were unseen. I was. It's interesting that we, there was a show in New York not long ago the, at the Matt Breuer, which also had, an, um, to some degree, an emphasis on his later work, his later underseen work. But we were just talking, and you said that there was literally no overlap between the work that was shown here and the work that was in, in your show, which I think speaks to the sheer volume of work. Um, yeah. that he produced, and I'm just wondering you know, if you can talk a bit about just engaging with that and, and making your selections. Yeah, the, the, the starting point, when they asked me to, to do a, a Curator Monk uh, exhibition, I think it was because I'm a writer and Monk wrote a lot. Um, um, and that was kind of the connection. Um, but then I went down in a magazine and saw everything. I mean, it's a basement, and, and you, you drew out some it's like, you know, like six meters up and it's filled with paintings. And it was so much stuff I have, just haven't seen, you know. And that didn't really look like Monk either. And then I realized our, we have a version of Monk and he's so well known for the scream and for a few other paintings that we can't really see him. Um, and then I thought I'll, I'll make an exhibition of all the works that we haven't seen. Uh, to try to get a grip on what he wanted as an artist to what he, what he was interested in and where he wanted to go without because his work, the one, one we know are well known because they are so incredibly good and then there are a lot of works that's not that good that's why we haven't seen them and, but there are qualities in them uh, at the same time that is incredibly interesting. And that was, you know, what I tried to do in that exhibition to, to show him so you can see him for, like for the first time without seeing his masterpieces. So there are no masterpieces in that exhibition, not one, which is a 
you know, was a great challenge and incredibly uh, uh, satis uh, such a satisfaction to, to do. So I spent a lot of time at the museum. We did this film, brought a book. It was like a monk for two years, full time, full on. And it was great, really great. I was wondering if you could, it's, it's interesting that you focused on his, um, his late work, you know, and I'm wondering if you were thinking about this, this notion of, of late style, you know, which is a concept that Adorno talked about late style and like the critic Edward Said wrote a book about it and this idea that artists and writers produce a different kind of work later in life, um, you know, and, and I'm wondering how much that was on your mind in terms of, you know, putting this, this, this show together and, and, and I guess maybe you guys too in terms of what was, you know, how, how it was all coming together. I think what I like with his late art is, is that it is, um, he's just trying, he's just painting, he's just, he's not looking for masterpieces, it's just, it's just a process he's, he's in. And when you see all of the paintings, it's like you are in a life of painting. It's like if you read Proust, you are in a life of literature. If you see that, you, you are in. And it's, it's that, I mean, he had his paintings, was in the garden, it was snowing on it, it was on the floor, people walked on it. It was like, just didn't care. It was just art, just not, that's not important. And that, you know, lowering the threshold between life and art is, I think that's wonderful. And that was what he did. It was very casual, painting was casual, was what it did. And, you, and then you have many of those casual paintings and, and there is something. And he didn't go anywhere, you know, he just painted around in his garden and, and, and just in wh where he was all the time. And, and then there is a masterpiece, you know. And then, then there's like two, three years of nothing really much and then there is another masterpiece. But it is like, it's, it's, in, it's just a, a way of life and, a, and, a, and, and what art could be, I think it's, it's, in, it's in there somewhere. I know, and I, I love to add to that. I think that's been the most inspiring thing about being allowed to be a part of this process is the to discover um, the late life of an artist like Munch and see the lucidity and the clarity of his painting. Um, there is a tendency in a lot of, of young artists, you see it in cinema and writing and in, in painting as well sometimes, to want to do the masterpieces. And uh, it can be a hindrance. And just what Karlova talks about, this, this idea of just being concerned with, with the process and not so much about the exterior view, almost like a human journey. You have to kind of learn to accept who you are and just do it. <laughs> and I see a lot of that in Karlova's writing. Um, this, after we'd done the film, there's a beautiful article about ice skating. I think that was printed also in America, wasn't it? I read it in Norwegian. Was that in New York Times? And you can now just sit down because you have the bravery of being simple and lucid and talk about ice skating. And it touched me. And at the end of something you wrote about ice skating, I was almost crying. And it was very simple. It was from your life and it was just clear. And there wasn't this idea that it had to be captured in the great novel, you know? And I think that watching you go through the process of what you're going through as a writer, and seeing that you are yearning so much to see in Munch that liberation of just doing it. I mean, without sound like a Nike ad here now, but you know what I'm saying? It's this, 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 uh, lower your shoulder, uh, relax, try to be about craft. By the time Munch made some of these paintings that, it, let's be honest, a lot of people are not interested in. They've been curated away time and time again. 
He's painted thousands and thousands of hours. I mean, towards the end of his life, you know, Monk had no kids, scattered affairs with some people that he painted, some ladies. And he supposed there's a story, you know, last like five years before he passed away, that neighbor's house burned down where he had his studio and the fire brigade arrived and Monk would just sit there and paint almost in his underwear and they would say sir you have to move no you have to move i'm painting you know he said to the fire brigade i mean he was obsessed with this was his life he had a life in painting and i i i've observed now karlova just right and i think that's very inspiring i think that's you know i think that's and for young people we were thinking emil and i like for young people to watch that in a film just trying to focus on a guy that just sits down and paints woods and trees for a long time and then if you spend time with it and you have patience, you actually see trees in a different way because of that nuanced clarity of something. You know, I, I don't know, I thought that was great. And that plays into your question about late art. <laughs> I hope. Did it make sense? Great wow. segue. Well done. Um, uh, now, I, I want to ask you, Joachim, a, a question about, um, you know, you say you're not a monk expert, but then you obviously immerse yourself in this. And um, you were making a film at the time, right? You were finishing Thelma at the same time as yeah, you were making yeah, this. Yeah. I'm just wondering what, whether that was in any way something you were thinking about, because in some ways Thelma, which is your fourth feature, is a little bit different from your previous three in terms of maybe moving from like more of a realism towards something more expressionist. So I'm just wondering if that was something you were thinking about um, because of your involvement with this project? Yeah, not, I can't say much about it other than the fact that I, yes, they were made parallel, and I realized through Monk my longing for the mythological landscape of Scandinavia, and particularly in Norway, the woods, the, the moss, you say, the green stuff on stones, you call it moss, yeah. Uh, the stuff that you, the tactility of nature in Norway, which is very indirectly represented in early Monk, but becomes very primary in late Monk, I found to be very inspiring. And yeah, in cinema, you can look at things too. The trees and the moss and stuff like that. So that's always inspiring. I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll take a few from the, the audience. I want to ask about this, this idea of like identification with Monk in some ways. I feel like it's... It's something that you bring up, you brought up like as we're talking now, but you also bring it up in the film when you ask, you know, Karlova about his identification with Monk. And I feel like as we think about the idea of you curating the show, it's hard for us not to draw parallels between your interests and his and your work and his. And, and um, I'm wondering to what extent that is something that weighs on you or weighed on you in this in this process um that was kind of the worst thing that could happen that someone would thought that it was any parallel you know that there was any parallel between me and monk because there isn't and it's 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 um no i didn't ever think about that and and i was almost shocked when joachim had this theory about my late work and my early work and it was kind of a parallel to monk i never thought of it at all uh no um it's more like, I never do that with, mm -hmm. with art or with literature. I never use myself as any measurement at all. It's, it is about the exact opposite, to lose yourself in it, you know, to disappear completely. And sure. 
And what comes back is a desire to create something. That's what, what you get back from, from doing, I think, like this, to, right. to watch Monk as much as we did, I think. Right, no, I, I think I, but I'm always just interested when, you know, there's some kind of, like, cross-pollination across different forms. Like, you know, when I hear, like, filmmakers drawing inspiration from literature or, like, you know, musicians drawing inspiration from paintings. So I, I feel like there's just something interesting that happens. And it's, you know, you, filmmakers have made a film about a novelist curating a monk show. So I feel like there's maybe something interesting going on about just, you know, the expressive limits and possibilities of each form that is implicit in, 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 this, in this project, this sort of triangulation. Yeah, I, um, when I wrote about this um, monk painter and, 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 I, and I wanted, I didn't want to uh, make a book about monk, I wanted to make a book who monk is now. So I, I, I interviewed people, artists and uh, art historian and uh, filmmakers and um, writers. And I interviewed Joachim, that's not in the film, it's a, but it's in the book. Uh, and I started to think about Joachim's films through Munch, to see if there are any parallels. And yes, there were parallels. And it was very, it gave very much for me in my way of looking at Joachim's films to do it that way, you know, uh, because you get a distance to it somehow and you see where it relates to and where it uh, goes away from it. So for instance, uh, there is a a pose in many a monk's paintings, which is very painful, but it is man looking away, man not taking in, man being in a scene but not being a part of it. Um, and especially, I think that's my favorite monk picture, it's called Ash, and it's, it's in the forest, and it's a man looking down, and it's a woman there, she's in despair, and it's, it's an incredibly powerful picture. And when I was uh, thinking about Joachim's films, I thought about the beginning of a slow, uh, you know, where where the character is. Um, yeah, I, I won't. But that film is about that, you know, all the people trying to connect, he disconnect, he, he turns away, you know, throughout. And, and that's, you know, that's a kind of an opening to, to start to talk about that film for me. Uh, and, yeah. about other things too, other no, films no, too you. that I, have I, parallels, but... In Norway, we, I mean, it's, I, I, uh, it, Munch is such a big deal. So when Karlova says this, I don't know how to reply. Thank you for, for seeing any kind of correspondence there. I, there is something uh, with Munch, I think we, 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 we narrowed down some themes that I think we are all interested in, in Munch as well, which deals with the fact that he is um, in a culture which is, I'm generalizing, and I know there's some Norwegians here, so bear with me, but there, there's this sort of post-Protestant guilt complex in Norway. There's a lot of shame about explicit emotions. We are by far amongst, I think, at least the most shy pe people socially in the world, I would say. Probably. Like, probably, you know, like it's, it's just a part of how a culture develops, who knows why, you know? And there's a lot of shame about making a big deal about your emotions, your sentiments, uh, stuff like that. And I think to a lot of us, uh, monks um, sort of explicit expose of the most terrifying emotions is, is, has been very liberating for a lot of us. But he also um, 
goes farther than that. He's, he deals with a lot of personal memory material, a lot of grief, a lot of personal things that are, of course, indirectly represented in his paintings, but sometimes also more explicitly directed, like the wonderful painting, I don't know what it's called in English, um, where everyone's around the bed, uh, grieving, grief in the room of death, I, I imagine it's called, perhaps, where you see no one's faces, and there's just someone who's passed away in a bed, and you see a family in grief, you don't see their expression, but somehow through that abstraction you see a couple of faces but you sense that there are one group of people emotionally not connecting over the most terrifying emotion of losing a loved one for example so there's something i think inherently norwegian also in that subject and theme of sharing emotion not knowing how to talk about emotion and a lot of that and i think in your writing you you've you've been talking about that how we convey ourselves to others how we feel outside of something and I don't know, to me it was quite logical when Karlova was suddenly doing a monk exhibition. It made sense to me, but then I realized it didn't, for you, you'd never thought about that. That's the kind of beauty of it, I think. Had you been planning to ask him that? Did you know that you were going to do that in that scene? You... To ask him? Yeah, like because it seems, for me, as I was watching the film, that's the question I'm thinking of, you know, and I'm wondering if you had planned that moment. No, no, it was very spontaneous. I mean, to be quite honest, a lot of what happened was my um, procrastination, like I didn't know how to attack this at all. And Carlo is ultimately so interesting. So it's like sometimes I just, I, I went rambling a little bit. And I think that was one of those, I was just spontaneously feeling that you were, there was something there with you and Monk. But as you can feel now, he doesn't want, I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about one's own art in relationship to Edward Monk as a Norwegian. It's very tricky. And we had to do this little pep talk before the camera ran sometimes. Let's forget that it's embarrassing. Let's forget that it's embarrassing to talk about our own thing in, in context of Monk and stuff. And I, yeah, it, it is. I feel shy now doing this stuff. How do yeah. you feel, Karlova? Yeah, and I remember after the first, uh, the first session we had, uh, it felt like, um, and I was doing some strange radio thing afterwards. And they, they, were, they, were, just, they were just talking and then, uh, when I do things like that, I just don't think about, you know, people listening. I just talk. And I talked about the experience with, with Joachim and how I felt we're talking about Munk and how the gesture becomes so big because and we can't really, can we really talk about this? Do you know the biggest things in life, the biggest art? Can we, can we do that? And I felt so ashamed just by doing it, you know? And the stupid thing was that I did it on the radio, so Joachim was listening, you know? <laughs> Oh, that was how we felt, and it was like, but that was also part of what we did in that film because we opened up to each other in relation to what it is to make art, what it is to be open, and all. And that is, uh, to me, that's a, a kind of a constant roller coaster, very, very hard and very. And it's always like that. Have, can you back that up? If you say something, or if you can you back that up? Can you can you really do that? Can you say? something grand about life or about art or about death or about life and who are you who are you to say that you know and to me that's the bravery of Edward Munch is his first painting that was a masterpiece he was 22 years old uh, and it is a great painting but at the time people who saw it laughed at it you know he spent one year it's his, it's his sister's dying in the picture he spent one year Everything he had, he put it into it, and people are laughing, you know. 
And that's kind of the thing. Yeah, people laughed at the actual painting when it yeah, was yeah. finished. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's it's so, you feel that when you do talk about these things, that at least, you know, you're also close to, to just to, to go into that space. And it's, it makes it tense and real and, and terribly difficult, but also very interesting, I think. All right, we'll take some questions from the audience. We have some microphones uh, uh, here. Yes, we'll start here. Hi. Um, in the movie, there's a lot of talk about instinct and memory, both uh, with res respect to Munch's art and the creation of the exhibit. And I'm wondering for all three of you as artists, how you see intuition and memory in relationship to one another. Towards each other? You uh, towards, uh, sorry. Oh, gosh. Uh, just the two, the, the idea oh, of... Oh, intuition and memory. Ex exactly. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now I got it, sorry. Um, well, I think Karlova was talking about a very important moment in Munch's um, oeuvre, which I think we found very inspiring which, to, to talk about and to study, which is that fact of trying to, as a young artist, and continuing throughout it, creating things, to have all these ideas of how you want something to be as an object or as a text. Um, in Munch's case, he had these naturalist ideas of, of how something should be painted. And then he tries to paint his sister's passing, or her, her late stage of illness. And through the difficulties of that, a, a kind of a form forces this, itself forward as he's trying to confront a memory. And I think like we had some interesting conversations. I, I, don't, I don't know if you want to jump in here, Kalu, but you talked about how it is to actually write something that you felt you kind of wanted to represent an emotion. Do you remember this about the text and, and trying to do it while you felt the thing, like the intuitive? Yeah, that, that's, um, that is very strange because um, if you write about something very emotional that you have experienced yourself, uh, I did that in my last book, uh, especially. And I remember I was actually, and that's very unprofessional, but I was actually crying when I was writing it. And then I sent it to my editor and, and he said, but there's nothing there. It's nothing on the page. It's all in you. And I had to do it again. Uh, and it was incredibly painful. And I sent it to my editor and he said, but there's still nothing on the page. It's still all in you. And then I managed to do it the third time. But then to be able to do that, to transform my memory into something that others can read, you need a distance and you need um, to manipulate, you know, and, and you need to to do those things that's not, uh, uh, you know, very close to you, not honest, or which, but which belongs to the, the skill of, of writing or, or, or filming, which is a very strange thing, because intuition is like more like that brings you to some, some place, but, but the actual transformation of a, of a strong memory into something that other people should read is, yeah, you can't be in it yeah, 100%. It's, it's very strange. We, we talked a lot about it because I admire Kalova's uh, approach to being very honest and direct in, in my struggle, for example, particularly, actually, uh, saying I am trying to represent memory and experience. Uh, and my approach to creating movies is the opposite. In a way, I, I sit for a long time with a co-writer and we talk about things and stuff starts sticking and we don't always know why. 
and then we create a structure through character and our intuition kind of leads us to that's that's interesting very often we fool ourselves we realize through form oh it'd be great to have that person do this or that or that scene of specific oh that location in oslo i want to film that and then and and slowly you start talking to actors and you kind of bullshit them a bit or let them find their own way and then you've written something and then you create the film and then suddenly years later someone comes back to you like at my film oslo august 31st i don't know if you're aware of it but i i don't watch my films again i say goodbye to them i and i don't watch them again and like four weeks ago i was uh, invited to a film school in norway to talk about it and they had seen the film and i came in like this after the film and they started asking me a lot of uh, questions about the character they went really deep and I got really emotional and I had to hide it. And I, even then I started realizing more about what I had done. So it happens backwards for me. I don't always know. And I, I tried to sustain that. And I'm sure you go through the same thing, even though you want to attack it full on and say, this is about this specific thing in my life. For me, it's very often a surprising, strange thing that it doesn't make quite sense sometimes. And it's a mixture of, um, you could call it intuition, formal, uh, vanity sometimes I just want to make a cool scene and show you you know or something I find beautiful or, or something silly and and then later I realize why that's stuck and not the thousand other ideas and I don't know if I want to quite understand the process um, I'm very ambivalent about it but I I think it's important to to check in like does it really matter to you at least that that's that's kind of a yeah it seemed to me that uh, you did this for monk you took the varnish off our mental images of this painter and restored him to us in a new way, which was very beautiful and I think in, intensely moving for everybody here, especially for anybody who creates art in any media, uh, even written uh, poetry or books or anything. Um, and my question is, now that you've done this for Monk, has anyone approached you about doing it for any other artists, and are you eager to do it again for somebody else? Was that a question for me? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, maybe we should start with the person that put all this into motion. Would you want to do this for another artist? I've, I've always wanted to do something uh, about another Norwegian. No. Don't look so scared. I want. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about uh, Knut Hamsun, which is is a Norwegian uh, writer, and he's he's the same. He's very well known in Norway, uh, but he isn't as as known in in the rest of the world. And he's my favorite author, and he's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly interesting. Also because he was a he was a, a Nazi during the war, so he's a very controversial figure in Norway. But everybody loves his writing hates his politics and how get those things together and how was it possible that he could he writes so tenderly about people and about about his characters and then he has this very brutal and aggressive uh, way of talking politics and how is that possible to you know be in one person that would be a great thing to do yeah wow Sorry. take on Hamsun. they they still won't name any streets in norway after him yet Everyone agrees he's perhaps the greatest novelist Norway has ever had. So, if you take him on, 
<laughs> I, I might follow. What do you say, Emil? <laughs> you looked a bit skeptical over there. No, 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 but it's, it'd be great. I, I would encourage you to, but, but I think you could also do that. <laughs> he also, he also no, he is very interesting because he also wrote about America. He was there very early and his, when he was young. And he, what he wrote about America is, is great because it's such a raw and so energetic and so he's very critical though. But he was working as a, in Chicago. There's so many things in his life that is interesting. Next project. It's fantastic. Have you considered uh, writing something yourself or, or doing a book on Hamsun? Or I mean, you have mentioned him. You have in Yeah, I've been already. thinking about it, yeah. Great, yeah. No, but you, you should all, I mean, it's, I, I, are, you, are you aware of Knut Hamsun, the Norwegian writer? He, he won the Nobel Prize of Literature. He's, he's not, um, he is considered a great writer still in Norway. He's taught in schools in the curriculum and he was very, very old when his strange, remember Norway was, was occupied during the war and, and suffered tremendously during, during the Second World War. Right. So, what can I say? It's a complicated issue. It's also nationally, but it's important to convey that that great writer time and time again still. And, and if you took him on, Karlova, that would make a difference. Yeah, we can go to Chicago and look at his places there. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, thank you for thinking of us. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. Hunger, yeah. The, yeah. the novel Hunger, yes. Hunger, Mysteries, Palm, great novels. And parallel, 1890s, rock star. Parallel with Edward Munch. Um, so, oops. Uh, a lot of the emotions we see in the paintings and obviously also in the film are very universal human emotions. But I just wanted to ask, were you very conscious about your Norwegianness while making this movie? Did you maybe overly conscious? And um, to rephrase the question a little bit, do you think it would have been a different movie and a different exhibition if you were uh, two filmmakers from Madagascar and a writer from Ecuador? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Probably. It would be the same, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I think it's, a, it, just quickly, I think it's a relevant question. It's hard, this whole thing about national. Yeah, yeah, the weight was, was on us, but we were also triggered by it. It was fun to kind of take it on, you know, and when Karlova led <laughs> it, the struggle, it was good. Yeah. What, what do you think? I mean, we, we, we don't go into it so much in the film, but we did talk a lot uh, in material that was not in the film about the national identification with Munch somehow. And we discussed whether, how did he transcend that kind of shy and shameful ethos of Norwegian bourgeois life in 1890s? You know, how was he so brave? What, what, in a strange way, he's not the typical Norwegian as we perceive Norway, but he's someone to help forward for little kids as an ideal. It's a very paradoxical thing. Do you, have you any thoughts about this, Karlova? Um, yeah, we talked about it. And it's also his, this um, more than a hundred years since he painted uh, and some of his painting, I think, has kind of defined also us, what it is to be, you know, Norwegian and Norwegian artists uh, in a way. So it's, it's, uh, it's not like, yeah, also it, it comes from him somehow. But it's, you can't, 
you can't look away from where you come from and, 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 and the culture you belong to. So, so it's like we're just immersed in it, and that's interesting in itself, I think, uh, because we know him so well. And it's like we know him so well that we can't really see him. It's very strange, but Norway is a very little country, and he's like the only, only really good artist we have in, as a painter, I think. I think the, the idea of nationalism is a, is a topic that you might think about with respect to Munch in the 30s and the 40s, and one reason why the late work has not been that well-known because of the idea of nationalism as a kind of dirty word and the rise of fascism in the 30s, and then by the time of his death in the 1940s. Um, but we saw some of that at the show at the Met Breuer, and, and it was really interesting in that considerations of landscape and figurative work by an artist who's working essentially in an era when what institutions like MoMA previously considered the great work is abstract, right? So he's doing something a bit retardataire, but you, I'm, I wish we'd seen the full show here. Um, but the other interesting element of his late work, which relates also to Met Breuer is the first show they opened with two years ago was called Unfinished. And you talk a little bit in the film about the potency of Munch's unfinished works and that there's a real extraordinary sort of quality of understanding him as an artist, seeing his process as an artist and, and doing works later in his life, which whether on purpose or not, remain unfinished and have a kind of depth that we also see in sort of unfinished works by Turner and other artists coming out of the uh, 19th century. But um, what is the equivalent, I would ask, in, in writing or filmmaking, right? Not in a postmodern way about the crafting of work or process, which we're familiar with today, but in terms of really unfinished work, because the way that you talk about your work with your editor, right? An artist doesn't have an editor, you know? So the, the vivacity and the, the unveiling of process that you see in Monk's unfinished works how does that stand with relation to filmmaking and to writing? That's a very good, that's a very good question. Um, the question of un, what's unfinished is, is very difficult. I mean, to establish it in writing is, I think, is easier in painting. But the, the parallel would be, for me, would be, uh, the very obvious parallel would be um, Scream by... Uh, by Monk, if you see it and think about what was being painted at the same time, it's incredibly radical. And it kind of takes away the space. There's no space there. It takes away the, the, the time. It's like it's, it's immediate. It's an immediate painting. And you don't see that kind of immediate in, in that time. And I know that Monk read a lot of Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky has that same if you read him, it is incredibly intense and also unfinished. If you read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky at the same time, you see Tolstoy is everything is painted out and everything is described. And in Dostoevsky, it just isn't. It is like bits and pieces, and, but it has this incredibly um, intensity in it, and that intensity is the thing. So Dostoevsky will be the, the obvious parallel. And I know that Munch, the last thing Munch did the day he died, uh, he read Dostoevsky in the afternoon, and then he died two, two hours later. So he read, him, he read him throughout his life, and I'm absolutely sure that he learned through that somehow. You know, what he wanted to do is that emotion, that's, that's, what, he, that's what he wanted to do, I think. 
but contemporary writers and contemporary film, I. I don't it, know. It's films, a tricky. It's, your, it's a different process. I mean, we could. Um, we're all eager to see Orson Welles' lost masterpiece. Was it written on the wind? No, the other side of the wind. The other side of the wind. Yeah, we're showing which it Netflix here paradoxically week. now have picked up, and <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, you know, and we, we we've seen pieces of it, and it looks like kind of a radical <laughs> experimentation with time and space. So you know, fingers crossed. You might have seen it, and it, and is are we awaiting something great? It's. Unfinished. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To, to the gentleman's point, that might be interesting in itself. It's hard with cinema because it's such a specific. You got to kind of close it off and mix it and make sure it but has. Maybe a, like the documentary fiction, like divide is a bit. Maybe applies here. No, in a sense, maybe, because yeah. there's like this. You know, this, you're not. You're not. How do you finish a documentary? I mean, you know, depending on the kind of documentary you're making. It's, it's true. But you have something, I think, and I'm sorry, this might be a cliche, but um, Dreyer's, two, two filmmakers from Scandinavia comes to mind with Monk for me. And one is uh, Dreyer, called Theodore Dreyer's Joan of Arc, which has a sort of a raw experimentation of testing the representation of emotion in an actor. Maria Falconetti's long elongated crying close-ups in that film to me feels like someone who's going for something raw, direct human emotion, yet it has a sense of um, proximity and distance to it, as if we are, we want to break through into it, yet we're left on the outside, which is the paradox of Bergman much later. Bergman is the one that wants to go deeper revealed inner truth, which I think is a yearning you feel strongly in, in the most known monk as well, to cry it out, scream it out. Um, the reds, the hysteria, the grief, but also the paradox, like you see in Bergman's movies, of watching a face over a long time, Liv Ullmann, feeling things and in, in persona and feeling yet on the outside of it. The paradox of looking at the other, the other as an object, yet you want to identify, but there will be always something hidden behind that face. There's, that's a theme that I find really interesting in Monk and that you see in a lot of great Scandinavian masters of cinema, particularly Bergman, I think, is the, kind of the one that changed the meaning of close-ups and the meaning of feeling left out and dealing with the uh, melancholia of proximity. Like, it's tough to get close to each other as human beings, you know? And I think that that's a big Monk theme as well. I think this is a good note to finish on, actually. Um, we actually have books to sell, and um, you have to, uh, you're going to sign some books. So um, we do have to leave some time. Um, but I want to thank you all for coming, and really thank you, Joachim and Carl Over, very much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.